This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome everyone to episode number two of 50 Year Flashback of Wrestling at MSG Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, the man who went to every Madison Square Garden show for five years, starting in 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. Hey, John. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing good today. I'm doing good. And if you want to hear every episode on the 50th anniversary, you have to go to www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the Superfan, PWS Associate Producer, Producer, or Executive Producer tiers will get access to the show. And for just $5 a month, you can get your foot in the door, and you can get access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And remember, the higher the level, the more benefits you get. From Zoom calls with John Arizzi, access to 8mm films from shows we're discussing here, to unseen videos, to vintage magazines being sent to you. And there's only one way to experience it. That's becoming a member to John's Patreon page. Join the community. Hear history. Patreon.com slash John Arizzi. John, I know you're adding stuff always to Patreon for different levels. Anything coming up you can hint about? What we're doing, I mean, it's, you know, the slogan is, you know, uh, join the community. We've built a community on Patreon. Hear the history. Join the community. Hear the history. So there's always stuff that's going up. And uh, since, you know, we are recording this and it's going to drop on October 25th, by October 25th, we will be in a whole new ball game in regard to content that's up there right now and new things that are being added. And we would have done a couple of Zoom calls already with our high tier Patreon uh, Patreon members. Uh, so it really is a, a great community that we've built, people who love the history of pro wrestling and uh, adding this show to that mix on the Patreon account. People have really, really enjoyed the first episode that we did. I mean, it's an interesting thing to look back 50 years ago because that, Tim, is one I was really, really just getting started to think about as a 14-year-old. How do I get involved in this business? It's groundbreaking to think that that first show that you went to was in August, and now we're going to go on to October. It'll be only your second show ever seeing a live wrestling event, so I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I dove in deep after that first show in uh, in August, and and you know started watching TV, and then I discovered another uh, Spanish station uh, in New York, uh, New Jersey, rather Channel Forty One, which was actually airing shows from Los Angeles in the Olympic Auditorium, where Freddie Blassie was a babyface, and I got to see John Tolis and all these other big stars that I just read about in the wrestling magazine. So my fandom was taking a turn after that first garden show on August 30th. And now I'm just kind of like diving in and 
once I discovered the uh, Olympic auditorium wrestling, that just made it even more intense for me. So I was like, I was going crazy uh, after that first live show that it's like, this is the coolest thing ever. Well, a lot of people have been asking us about the garden, about Madison Square Garden. It was, at the time, it was a mecca of not only wrestling, but so many, if you played the garden, if you were a musician or you were a sports person and you played the garden, it was a big deal back then. Not not that saying it's not a big deal today, but it wasn't the same. Back then, it was really, really special. Oh, it was. I mean, during this time period, I mean, you know, 1971, I think it was not too long. I don't know if it was 70 or 71 that George Harrison did that big Bangladesh uh, tribute there. And I mean, shows at Madison Square Garden, concerts at Madison Square Garden were huge. I'll never forget, I think it was in 71 or 72 that I bought tickets to Jethro Tull Aqualung tour and my mother wouldn't let me go. So my oldest sister and my uh, soon to be brother-in-law at the time, I bought three tickets. I couldn't go. So they wound up taking my sister's husband's brother and I never heard the end of it. But uh, I did get to see shows at Madison Square Garden uh, when Elton John uh, played there seven nights in a row in 1976. I was there for three, three of those shows I went and it was crazy. And I saw Billy Joel there. And I, I mean, I still love the garden's atmosphere for concerts. It was it was amazing, actually. Yeah, the, the garden was one of those places. I grew up on Long Island. You grew up on Long Island. I remember my first garden show with Brian Adams in the summer of '69 tour. So wow. yeah, it just you just remember those things how important it was. And I remember the first time I saw Billy Joel there was a New Year's Eve show. So if you're like a New Yorker, the garden mm-hmm. is not just a special place for. It's always going to be a special place for people around the tri-state area. But for people in the world, back in the 70s, like you talk about George Harrison, it was like, where are we going to play? We're playing the garden. And everyone goes knows exactly where you were. Let's give a little history real quick. I'm going to give you a little history about the garden. Um, it was called, originally it was called Madison Square Garden Center. It was for James Madison, who was the fourth president of the United States. Kind of funny, now it's on the fourth garden, fourth president. The first yeah. garden, the first and second garden, Madison Square Garden, were on East 26th Street and Madison Avenue. It was opened in 1879. It burnt down and was reopened in 1890. And then the third Madison Square Garden was on 8th Avenue and 50th Street. That opened in 1925. Their biggest show was January uh, 2nd, 1960. Headliners Antonio Rocco defeated Mighty Zuma in about 18 minutes, 32 seconds. But the big deal for me was, and probably for you too, Bruno Sammartino. First appearance at the Garden, he beat Wild Bill Curry. Bill Curry was substituting for uh, Killer Kowalski. That match lasts about five minutes, but this is Bruno's first show of over 159 garden appearances. Yeah, that's uh, quite the record. I don't think anyone will ever surpass that record. It lives in history, and even his opponent back then, Wild Bull Curry, the guy with the big uh, eyebrows, he used to have bushy eyebrows, and his son, uh, Fred Curry, wrestled at the Garden early on, uh, and we'll be able to go over and cover Fred Curry's um, uh, matches at the Garden. You know, you talk about wrestling magazines, not being able to see matches. I remember Wild Bill Curry yeah. and those eyebrows. They, they scared yeah. you. They were scary eyebrows. Yeah, it was like his eyebrows and Ox Baker's eyebrows were, you know, two of the wildest eyebrows in the history of pro wrestling, I think. And going back to Bruno, this went on. He had 159 appearances at the Garden. That went on, you figure, about once a month for like over... 13 years. That's pretty impressive. It's crazy, you know, that history that Bruno had in that garden when it went on, even consecutively for all those years he was champion for the first run and then coming back to recapture the title at the end of uh, 1973. It was an amazing streak, and I don't think any performer, any wrestler uh, will ever match that. 
it's just not going to happen because, first of all, the WWE does not even go to the Garden except for on rare occasions. Uh, they did a successful show back on September 10th that uh, filled up the Garden, and uh, and there was a magic about that SmackDown just because it was at the Garden. So maybe they'll do more shows there, but no one's ever gonna no one's ever gonna beat Bruno's uh, streak ever. No, this garden opened in 1925, and this was the Madison Square Garden that in 1967 you were turned away at 10 years old from coming in because it was a 14-year-old or older rule at the time. Yeah, it was a New York State Athletic Commission law, children under 14, not allowed. And, uh, you know, back in 1967, I, I attempted to go, and uh, I just wasn't able to get in. It was uh, it was Gorilla Monsoon against Bruno San Martino. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at the record books right now just to kind of pinpoint when exactly uh, that show took place. It was on uh, May the 15th, 1967, Bruno San Martino beating uh, Gorilla Monsoon. And I, I never forget it because I wanted to see Antonio Pugliese and Spiro Sarion team up against Baron Secluner and Luke Graham. <laughs> And Professor Tanaka was against the Friendly Ox. I mean, and that was a show I couldn't uh, I couldn't attend, unfortunately. You've been to some great shows in your life, and I keep on looking at it this way, and I, I got to stop doing it. I'm looking at it through today's eyes. I'm thinking, wow, how much money did the WWF lose not having kids? But like you were saying earlier, they, they weren't focused towards kids at the time. No, they were not. It was not marketed to the kids like it was. And it was more of an adult show. I mean, you went in there, and uh, it, was, it was almost like because most of the crowd including myself at the time, thought it was, as they call, a shoot. It was real. Uh, and so you were in there and you were looking at like, you know, we're seeing guys fight and wrestle and this is the real deal. You know, there was always that underlying suspicion of it being uh, not on the up and up. But uh, the majority of the people that were that were attending these shows, they, they took upon it as that you were going to a Ranger game or a Knicks game or a boxing match. It had that realism and had that suspension of disbelief that everybody bought into. Absolutely. Uh, that was the third garden. The fourth garden, which is at the same spot as it is today, is at Penn Station, opened in 1968, uh, February 11th to be exact. And the first WWF show was eight days later at the garden. Very, very true. We're looking back to October 25th. 1971, Madison Square Garden. Now, the last garden show we were saying earlier was August 30th, 1971, and they had taken a, a month off. Did they do that a lot, taking a month off? It was probably maybe once a year that they wouldn't do a Monday and they'd skip a month. As I mentioned on the last episode, a lot of times when they had to move the date is because the circus was there. There were different reasons for it, uh, but that's what I kind of remember um, some shows were on a Saturday night. It was either a Saturday night or a Monday, but uh, 90% of the shows were on a Monday night. It still blows my mind that they're having shows on the Monday and they're selling out on the Monday. Now we're talking, that was August. Now bring us back real quick, John. Let's fill in. You went to your first show August 30th, 1971. Now it's October 25th, 1971, two months later. Uh, remind us how you went to the first show and then the second show, who'd you go with and how'd you get tickets to the second show? Okay. Uh, the first show, I went with Frank Favalli, a guy that I met at an outdoor little camp out in someone's backyard back in early 71 or mid 71. And we just kind of became friends because we both liked pro wrestling. He invited me to go uh, with his dad uh, to that show in August. And I had never been to a live event before. And it was cool for me. I mean, it really started this uh, life-changing uh, swing in my life. It really changed my life that night. That night in the backyard under the stars uh, with all the other guys talking about 
you know, baseball or football and, and me and Frank discovering that we liked wrestling, that literally changed my life. You never know if I didn't go to that uh, outdoor, you know, camp out. Uh, the guy's name was Bobby Osmond. I remember it now. Third Street, West Babylon. I was invited. My friend John Belvedere, a few others. And we just kind of camped out that night. And I know my mother was like, yeah, I don't want you to go. You know, you know, I don't want you to go. My mother was a type of person. Once I did a camp out next door to where I lived on Fifth Street in West Babylon, I went to the Gallagher's who were right next door and they were like best friends. We were Met fans to sleep out outside at about three in the morning. My mother's out there with a flashlight from next door. Johnny, come home. Johnny, come home. You know, so I'm like, my goodness, I was so embarrassed. Uh, but anyway, uh, you never know what's going to happen. And I go to a, do this uh, camp out and meet Frank. I go to wrestling. And that was uh, now now it's history. What can I tell you? It's so amazing that you actually can pinpoint the days that changed your life. I know I, yeah. I can think of things that I can't pinpoint when things changed or when I like getting into wrestling or I remember seeing, I can't remember days, but you, you, it's great that you remember the exact days. So you go to the first show with your buddy, mm -hmm. Frank, you're having a great yep. time. You decide then, Hey, I'm going to go again. I want to go to the next show. And how did that come about? And how did you get tickets to the next show? Well, I immediately, you know, told Frank, you know, I, I want to go every month. And he's like, I'm right there with you. And his father couldn't go every time either. So, uh, so, I think I only went with his dad once and that was the first show. But when we decided to go to the second show, I, I immediately start, you know, my oldest sister, you know, Linda, God rest her soul. Uh, I was like, you got to come because she's the one that introduced me to wrestling in 1964 when she called me into the living room to see the midgets on TV. And uh, so I'm like, you got to come to wrestling. We got to go. Let's get a group. Let's get people together. And she calls her friend Carmela, who lived up the block on Fifth Street and Carmela's two sisters. And then I believe Donna Belvedere, my friend John's sister, my friend John and Frank trying to think there could have, could have been a couple of else. I think there were 10 of us and, you know, just collected the money. It was seven bucks a piece for ringside tickets. And I went to Ticketron because the Ticketmaster was not a Ticketron uh, was the original ticket outlet. And I believe it was in A&S, the shopping center in West Babylon, the Great South Bay Shopping Center in West Babylon. They had a Ticketron there and went and we wound up getting like seventh row seats, uh, which were not bad. You know, I was like so excited. But we had a whole group of us to get on the railroad and go to that show on October 25th. For the kids out there who don't know, there was no... Uh, you know, you can call, you can go online. You couldn't call. You had to go down to places. There were lines at times when concerts were going to go on sale, and you drive by. You were you, you said you were a Ticketmaster. It was at Ticketmaster. Uh, it was Ticketron. 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 And, and that eventually evolved into Ticketmaster years later. But Ticketron was the place to get the tickets. And I remember when I was a kid driving by, you know, the mall before it opened, and there'd be a line of people. And you know, why is there a line of people wanting to go into the mall? There, there, is there a sale or something? No, this concert's going on sale, or a wrestling yeah. event, or a baseball event. Remember when, like, even sporting events? Hey, you know, uh, the Yankees are going to the World Series. People used to camp out at Yankee Stadium to yes. go see them. That's that's how they did. And you, there was no going online. There was no making phone calls at the time. That's how you get your best tickets: going to either the box office of the venue or going to like the mall, like you did. You had to. You had a you had to wait in line, and I I remember vividly going. Going up, and I think it was on the second or third floor of A&S in the Great South Bay Shopping Center. And there was a little little uh, a section. And then hearing when you got the tickets and they're printing them out on the machine. And then you look at them and you're like, here they are in my hand, you know. And and that was always a special, uh, special thing for me. But you're talking about camping out. I mean, when the Mets got into the playoffs in 1973, 
I went to Shea Stadium with uh, my brother-in-law's friend, uh, Nikki, who kind of looked like Charles Manson at the time, and his girlfriend. And I sold my coin collection to buy tickets to the Mets versus the Reds playoff uh, series. And uh, we waited in line. We got there like, you know, I don't know, it was like five in the morning and we were able to get pretty good seats and I was able to see the Mets versus Reds. But that's what you did back in the day. You waited in line. You did. You did the line thing. Let's go back to the pricing real quick. Madison Square Garden, seven dollars yeah. ringside. What were the tiers in pricing to get into the garden? Because seven dollars seems like nothing, but I think hey, we figured it out. Like today's money, that would be like forty-five dollars today. But what kind of tiers did they have back then for pricing? The lowest tier was what they call the blue section, and they were three bucks a seat. And then you'd go down. I believe there's the green section, uh, which were five dollars maybe or four dollars, and then you had the um, I think there were five sections, blue, yellow, green, and then red, which were loge section 100s. And then on the floor was the ringside for seven bucks. This turned out to be a pretty good show for the WWF, 22,070. That's a sellout for them. So taking a month off was really good for them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when um, and, and 22,000 was a big house for them. It really was. It was an amazing uh, uh, sellout crowd and it was a big house at the time. For me, it was my second show. But the heat from and that blood in that first match with Stasiak Morales led to this sellout because the undercard wasn't anything to really sneeze about. It wasn't really like, you know, it wasn't an amazing card, but the main event sold the tickets to it. Do you remember uh, the TV building up to now that you went to your show in August and now you got two months to watch TV? How was the TV build up to this show coming up on October 25th, 1971? Well, it was your standard TV tapings. And then, you know, after the second match on TV, championship wrestling, uh, you know, with Vince McMahon, uh, and uh, it used to be Bob, uh, it used to be uh, uh, Bill Cardell, and then Vince McMahon took over one day and was like, what the hell is this guy? Who is he? It's not the old man. Obviously, it's a kid. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, and, and after the second match, they'd go to the interviews that were always uh, in the darkened arena. It was never a crowd there. And they would just promote the show. I mean, they had a lineup of different shows that they would promote. And now this one was the garden. And you'd hear Morales with all the passion and, and, and speaking Spanish, uh, Stasiak with the mouthpiece, the Grand Wizard. And so they were just hyping up the match and doing what you're supposed to do in the business as a promoter. But I was, I was definitely hooked and watching it each week now uh, to, um, to hear the hype of the show and, and, uh, and then see who else was going to be elevated or promoted. And, and that's when Freddie Blassie came back too. So it was like in this middle of this magical time for me. Now, let's go back uh, real quick. I got two questions about that, the TV tapings. Do you remember where they used to do those? Because I remember seeing them myself. It was a darkened arena, and there was only like a spotlight on the wrestler and the announcer on the ringside. Do you remember where they used to tape those? Well, when I watched it early on, it was always in Washington, D.C., with Ray Morgan as the play-by-play guy. This is the 60s. But uh, for the uh, WWF, they taped in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Arena, which was 45th and Market Street in Philly. And then they did an all-star wrestling show, which uh, debuted, I believe, in 1972. And that was done in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, in the Fieldhouse. So they do two uh, nights of tapings, tape three shows in Philly, and tape three shows 
in Hamburg, and that covered television for three weeks because they had the two different TV shows. And you were talking about the Grand Wizard, who was Stan Stasiak's manager on TV, but he wasn't allowed at the Garden. Managers weren't allowed at the Garden. Can you explain that to me? Well, they were allowed, but they just couldn't stay at ringside. They would walk their protégés, as they were called back then, into the ring and, you know, stay for the ring introductions and create the heat. Like, you know, you'd have the wizard with his flamboyant outfits and the turban and pointing. And of course, Captain Lou Albano would do anything, you know, crazy. But uh, these guys then from a New York State Athletic Commission law, once the bell rang, they couldn't stay at ringside. They had to go back to the dressing room, which was always a disappointment because they always stayed at ringside during TV. And I would think like if I was a manager, that's an easy night for me. Yeah, it's a good payday. It's the garden. Uh, you're in the main event, so you're getting a nice uh, nice payday. Uh, and then you just go to the back. And the, and the reason was is because they, they were hated. And uh, the uh, security and the you know management of the garden didn't want the chance of anyone attacking these performers. I mean, earlier in 71 in Boston, Blackjack Mulligan was uh, against Pedro Morales in a match and a fan stabbed him. The knife you know, went down his leg or whatever. So there was always that risk of uh, being attacked. And I don't know when that law in New York took place, but it had to be because I remember early 71 with Koloff beating San Martino. Uh, Albano had to go back to the back. But the only guy that was allowed to stay was, ironically, was Arnie Scullin, who managed Bruno back in the day. I wonder why. Because he was a good guy, and he used to pass the blade to Bruno. (laughs) (laughs) Which we'll get into another episode. We'll get into, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that down the road for sure. So if you're thinking about, like, Madison Square Garden... Rules. There's rules at Madison Square Garden. We already talked about there's like no masks allowed. Now no yeah. managers allowed, no kids allowed. So it's a different atmosphere than you would think at a wrestling match if you're looking at today's eyes. Or I'm wondering about other places in the country if they did similar things. It was much more restrictive at the Garden because of the commission. They were very, uh, very strict on the wrestling part of it. And even probably on the boxing side, the New York State of Leather Commission, they always had four or five at least representatives sitting at ringside. Uh, the, the referees had to be licensed through them. The timekeeper had to be licensed through them. I don't know about the ring announcer or not, but uh, they were strict. And if someone got thrown out of the ring, for example, the commission would be like, get back in the ring. You'd see them like, get back in the ring because they didn't want anybody out brawling outside the ring. Did these guys in the commission you know, buy this? Were they like in on it or were they more like, you know, they actually believed everything that they saw? They were not in on the finishes or who was going to go over or not, but they were there to be the governing body of the sport of wrestling at Madison Square Garden. So that's what they were there for. You know, they they generated a lot of revenue there because the tax on the tickets, there was a certain percentage that went to the New York State Athletic Commission. Which is amazing. They used to get a, they used to get a good payday themselves to be there. That's that's crazy. I don't it's kinda like, you know, why why are you there? It's kinda like a lifeguard at the Olympics. At the Olympic well, yeah, swimming it, pool. Yeah, like, it's like, but it's like the same thing in New Jersey. They had a strict athletic commission and I think Boston was a little bit more liberal, as was uh, and Philadelphia, obviously, had the athletic commission there. You know, the timekeeper and uh, the doctor at ringside, George Saharian, you know, which, which, uh, you know, everyone knows about him listening to this podcast, probably. So it was different. But the athletic commission was so stringent and strict. And and the fact that we're getting, uh, you know, a piece of the gate uh, was one of the main reasons Vince McMahon went in front of the, uh, the Senate or whatever and said, this is fake. This is predetermined. This is sports entertainment. So he can avoid 
paying those fees, those taxes to the commissions. And and he didn't want to be regulated as much as they were trying to regulate what he was doing. Wow. Just going back, that's how it started. It started right there. That little thing, that little thing, these guys going to ringside, these guys being there and thinking like, Mm -hmm. you know, running the show. And then Vince blew blew it off because he's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore because I plan on making a lot of money at this and I don't want them having a cut of it. This is amazing. Let's get into the show right now. The card is October 25th. 1971. It was a sellout crowd, 22,070 Madison Square Garden. Um, and they made, I think, uh, it was around $104,456 on the gate, which, which is a pretty good gate. All right, let's go to match number one. Rene Goulet defeated Juan Caruso in nine minutes, 15 seconds. I think uh, Juan Caruso was a guy that used to bring a bolo into the ring and swing it around his head. Uh, but he was basically a jobber, or as they would say, a preliminary wrestler back in the day. Today, they call them enhancement performers. But yeah, I remembered him from TV and Rene Goulet. But one thing I want to I want to bring up uh, was when we got to our seats there before the show started, because we got there early from the train I, and, you know, the crowd builds. But the first thing I did, because I was on the ringside, I wasn't in that first level and there were not barricades around the ring. So the first thing I did was like run up to the ring and start patting the mat, you know, to feel how hard it was or soft and feeling the turnbuckles and discovering the turnbuckles were basically sponge. So, it, you know, I was like, that's not like, you know, if you hit your head against it, man, yeah, I don't know if it'll hurt as much as they show it. So starting in a, a couple of questions in my mind, but that was the first thing I did. And uh, if I remember remember correctly, or it could have been the, the December show when I got my very first autograph, or actually, no, it, it could have been, actually, it was November. And it wasn't because I remember who it was. And we'll talk about that on the next episode. So there was no barrier. What 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 kept you no. from going close? Was it a rope of any kind? What was it? No rope. Nothing. It just nothing. It was just the ring. And you had seats around the ring. You had photographers. You know, George Napolitano was there. Bill Apter. I don't even think the Japanese photographers were there regularly at that time. But you had, you know, two rows of uh, athletic commission guys there and, you know, a couple of referees. And you had a, you had a security guard sitting at each ring post looking out at the crowd in case anyone tried to search the ring or get into the ring. But there was no barriers. There was nothing. It was just the ring. Wow. Uh, and um, Rene Goulet, I knew about him like in the 80s, but he was older at the time. Was he ever a uh, uh, main guy? Was he just a, uh, an undercard guy? What, what, what was his career like? Well, he, he was a journeyman. He traveled around in different territories and areas like they all did back then. Uh, there were so many territories to work at. But he was, a, you know, kind of a guy. He, you know, was a tag team champion for a bit. And uh, he later became a uh, road agent for the WWF. So he had a he had a he had a pretty good history there. All right. Let's go to match number two. Jimmy Valiant defeated Manuel Soto. Seven minutes, 39 seconds. Handsome Jimmy Valiant, and uh, he fought uh, Manuel Soto, who had that other long stretch of matches at Madison Square Garden. Uh, but uh, that was a guy, you know, Manuel Soto was one of the enhancement guys that would actually win some matches on TV. So he wasn't considered a perennial loser, and he had the, he had the following uh, because of his heritage. So he was a favorite at Madison Square Garden because he he was Hispanic and uh, the fans loved him. Jimmy Valiant was just like the atypical heel at the time. They turned him from babyface to heel and he had the bleach blonde hair and the you know the big the body was just incredible. He was a bodybuilder at the time and he was hated and you'd get the cat calls and the whistles and um Valiant beat him. It was a fairly short match about 7 minutes and change. 
Now, I want to go back to Jimmy Valiant because I remember seeing him in the 80s. I'm a little younger than you, but like the 80s yeah. was the boogie-woogie man. What was Jimmy Valiant like back then in the early 70s? Was What was he like? Was his career on the upswing, or was he still like considered just an under-talent and you didn't really know what you were going to go with him? Well, I mean, I think he was being groomed or pushed to be a, at least a, a mid-card guy uh, or set in the semi-main event, uh, so to speak. But he was being pushed, and he had the – he had um, uh, the Grand Wizard at his side as well. I think I remember back then when you had a manager, you were somebody. It actually gave you clout oh, yeah. when you brought in a the manager. Yeah. They always brought in a manager, even if the guy could handle his own promos really well. But when you get assigned a manager, that's your spokesperson. You know, that's your advocate, as Paulie is called today. I mean, you got to pay attention to this guy if he's being managed by somebody. Exactly, exactly. Match number three of the night, Carl Gotch defeated Beautiful Bobby. Uh, we really don't have a time limit on this one. Uh, no, uh, but um, it was also something which is really an interesting point because music was never played at any of the matches. But uh, Beautiful Bobby, also managed by the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, and I don't think it happened at this show, but it might have happened in November. It, one of these matches, he came out with Pomp and Circumstance, as is a, which was the Randy Savage theme song for so many years. Uh, so he came out to entrance music, and it, it could have been the very first time ever that uh, a, a wrestler came out accompanied by music, especially back in the days in 1971. Just, just to let everyone know, this is not the same beautiful Bobby that went on to the Midnight Express. Different beautiful Bobby. No, different. Bob Harmon was his name. He eventually became a promoter in the Boston area. He was one of the guys when I went to college in 75 that I was quite surprised to see him behind the scenes uh, as a promoter. And he was very close with Ernie Roth, who was the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. I mean, they were uh, uh, they were very close. But uh, Bobby, uh, since we were talking about doing this uh, show, uh, I actually, you know, uh, did a uh, search engine uh, search for him and i think he's still alive in the ohio area wow that's amazing i always like the i like the carl gotches and I like these these guys you're bringing in here that I've, I've never heard of before but had very good careers being journeyman yeah and, and gotch was just a shooter as we discussed in the last episode i mean he was he was being pushed but it wasn't until he really in the wwf that he teamed with renee goulet uh to capture the world tag team championships at the garden show in december which we'll cover you know that team you know that was so exciting to see um, these two guys because they had a good chemistry with each other and the fans loved them uh gotch made uh you know you know, nine minutes and change against beautiful Bobby beating him. It was a, it was kind of a upset at the time, the way uh, beautiful Bobby was being pushed, especially on TV. Gotcha. Uh, match number four. Hey, we're going to the tag teams. I love a good tag team. The rugged Russians, Igor and Ivan defeated Mike Conrad and Mike Pappas in the best two out of three falls match. No time was given at this. Yeah. The Russians, of course, uh, going into the ring uh, and they were, uh, uh, not allowed to wear the mask. They had the open face mask, which was also a very big disappointment because, you you know, on TV, they had these red masks and and then you could see their ugly faces. Um, and they beat Mike Pappas. Uh, Mike Pappas was a great high flyer in the ring. And uh, Mike Conrad, I do remember him, but not not that well. But Mike Pappas, I, I knew because I used to love watching him in the ring. And uh, one of the main things I remember about him during this time uh, was that uh, when Blassie came back and, you know, was making quick work out of all the all the guys that they put him up against TV, Blassie 
uh, would bite him on the head and draw blood and they would censor it on TV. Like right after the Stasiak uh, rematch with Morales, I mean, Blassie was doing the TV, uh, but they would put a big like it was almost like tape on the on the camera and it would just say censored because Blassie was drawing blood by biting everybody in the head. I remember seeing that it was a, I, I saw at the time it was later on it was a red X they used to put on when um, Blackjack Mulligan would put the iron claw on the claw head. yeah and they all of a sudden they put that red X on you and you're like no yeah. pull the X down another great way of promoting is putting mm-hmm. the red X on because you, you don't have a red X when you're live no 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 not at all and Blassie was you know his nickname was the vampire because he used to bite and he used to sharpen his teeth with a nail file during interviews and. Um, yeah, so it was kind of a really interesting time, but I remember I remember Mike Pappas from uh, uh, winning on TV matches for the most times, and then uh, and then when they needed to put somebody over like a Blassie, he would do the job. And then at the Garden, seeing him uh, compete, uh, and in this particular match, I know he didn't take the fall. He didn't get the one, two, three on him. It had to be a guy like Mike Conrad, who was a lower uh, preliminary guy at the time. Gotcha. Match number five, Gorilla Monsoon defeated Mike Monroe in seven minutes, nine seconds. Yeah, Monsoon was a perennial favorite. Big reaction. Mike the Moose Monroe was another guy that won some matches on TV, but, uh, you know, he was used as feeder for these uh, B-level uh, semi-main event guys like Monsoon at the Garden. Uh, so, uh, you know, people would get the impression that it was a little bit more competitive than it was. But Gorilla Monsoon beating Mike Monroe, I mean, it was just Monsoon all the way. People loved Monsoon. You know, after all the years that they hated him as a heel when he had came in in the early six, mid-60s to, to face Bruno and had the beard. And he was from Manchuria and he couldn't speak English. And while Red Barry was his manager at the time. And here's a guy who couldn't who never spoke English from Manchuria. And all of a sudden, you know, there's like he turns baby face, the beard is gone and he's talking, you know, like a like like a very intellectual professor. Uh, and he was actually from uh, New Jersey. So he was <laughs> not from Manchuria, but the fans loved him. He was 400 and they billed him as 401 pounds. Uh, he was just a guy that was beloved by the fans, especially after, you know, after he turned baby face, he was uh, loved. I love the turn when the turn, when you make that turn, when you're a really, really great heel and it's kind of like, where are you going to put him next? When you turn him baby face, it just, it's that pop. And then you, you just have a whole new fan base, which is amazing to me. Yeah, back then, that's the way it was. When somebody turned heel or turned babyface, it was a big thing. Now it seems to happen every single week. I mean, you don't even you can't even follow what's going on today. It's like the titles. Uh, you don't know who's winning what, who won what, who's hey, exactly. I was a tag team title. Really? When did you win the title? I can't remember. Back in the day, I can actually remember like the tag team titles, who it went yes. from. The boom, ba boom, ba boom. You remember all the things. And I don't know when that changed. I think it was somewhere in the nineties where they'd be changing monthly or even weekly at times. Yeah, the 90s is, was notorious for that. And, and you know, I, I still remember reeling off uh, the dates titles change hands. Like, you know, everyone knows January 18th, 71, Bruno loses. February 8th, uh, 71, Morales beats Koloff. You know, December 1st, 1973, Morales loses to Stasiak. December 10th, 73, Bruno comes back and wins the title from Stasiak. And then April 30th, 77, you know, Bruno loses to superstar Billy Graham. Uh, then in uh, February 20th, 1978, Backlund beats Graham. And, you know, you could go up to the Hulk Hogan era with every date that the tag team title switched or the heavyweight title switched. But once the Hulk Hogan era 
came in, then it becomes a mishmash of uh, the title switches were just too uh, too frequent. Too frequent, yeah. And I, it was uh, yeah somewhere around there. And I can remember some of the changes, you know, with Hogan at the again Hogan at the Garden. That was another one at the Garden. Yes, big big when he came in uh, after the first run when it was with Blasty. Uh, and, you know, when he came back in and uh, when McMahon decided to go uh, global uh, and put everybody out of business. Uh, so uh, when he come back, I mean, you don't even remember some of the things that took place, like when Hogan was a heel, when he first came in with Blassie and when and when Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant and chased stadium. That was like that never happened when Hogan and Andre uh, fought at WrestleMania three, no one had ever slammed Andre before, but they'd already been together at Chase stadium. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, it was kind of crazy, but, uh, Hey, but you know, what are you going to do? All right. And now we're going to go to another tag team match. I love my tag team matches. Chief J Strongbow and Victor Rivera defeated Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler in a best two out of three falls tag team match. Last about 13 minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah, it was two out of three falls. Both falls were won by uh, Strongbow and Rivera. They didn't get the titles from Tarzan Tyler or Luke Graham because one of those uh, one of those falls had to be by DQ, and you can't lose the titles by DQ. And, of course, Strongbow and Rivera, very, very popular. Chief J. Strongbow, extremely popular. Uh, probably the third uh, baby face in the company at the time. Very, extremely popular. Rivera, the same thing. In the top five of uh, heroes, uh, baby faces. Uh, monsoon right in that list too but what a great tag team strongbone rivera and tyler and graham had uh, an enormous amount of uh, charisma as well crazy luke they used to call uh, him uh, and when he when he'd hear people say crazy luke you know he'd just start running around the ring putting his he- hands over his ears tyler was more of a uh, more of a serious type of wrestler rugged brawler but crazy luke was just out of his mind uh and uh, and captain Albano was the mouthpiece for them was just a, made a dynamic trio and and crazy luke let's go to crazy luke real quick crazy luke's finishing move was like he taped up his thumb and it was like um it it was not the oriental spike it was a golden spike he called him the golden spike we got to remember that when we do our show on old wrestling moves that aren't used today yeah, I mean, uh, the crazy look, I mean, that was his finish. He's, he taped the thumb up and he'd like, you know, whatever. And he would try to hide the thumb from the referee and the thumb was just taped. It wasn't like, you know, it was anything more than a taped thumb with white tape around the thumb and around the wrist. And then he hit the guy in the throat. He'd spike him in the throat and then he'd get to one, two, three. That was a finisher. That was a finisher back then. Hey, you know what I wanted to ask you about, John, is that you talk about like nationalities, like uh, uh, wrestlers are known for like, hey, they're they're known because they're Spanish or like. Polish Ivan Putski. How big was that back in that time period? Where you know, like Pedro Morales coming up. We're going to talk about him in a minute. Like he was huge because of his nationality, not just because he was a great wrestler, but that brought people that put people into the seats. Well, yeah, it started with Argentina Rocca. You know, he he had the huge ethnic following, and then Bruno Sammartino with the Italians. One thing Vince McMahon Senior always did was he capitalized on ethnicity. He, he capitalized on the heritage of these uh, performers. You know, the Germans were always hated because of the Nazis. Uh, the Japanese performers were always hated because of Pearl Harbor and World War II. He would target and market those eth- ethnic crowds based on the performers. That's why he put Morales in when Bruno needed to take a break. He'd been on the road and needed to lose the title. McMahon saw it as a, I need to bring another ethnic guy in. And then when even Ivan Putski came into the territory, he really zoned in on that Polish power and, you know, 
getting the Polish fans locked into uh, cheering him. So uh, that's one thing McMahon did. He 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 capitalized and he he made it uh, a priority to make sure there was a um, uh, an ethnic champion to bring those countrymen in who were all mostly immigrants. Uh, you know, at least their parents or grandparents were immigrants coming into America. And here they were cheering on heroes who were also mostly uh, immigrants. Who was the Greek? There was a Greek wrestler. Spiros Arion? Or was it? Uh, yeah, Spiros was. Uh, that's another thing. I mean, when when I was started watching wrestling back in the day, when uh, when McMahon brought Antonio Pugliese in, who was billed as Bruno San Martino's first cousin from Italy. And there are early matches that still exist from Washington about his debut where Bruno actually brings him to the ring and stays at ringside with him. Uh, but Spiros Arian coming in from Greece, he immediately went over to the Greek uh, audience and he was he became for me and I was Italian. But when I first saw Spiros Arion back in 66, when he made his debut, I mean, he was like they pushed him to the hilt. And the very first night he was even in the territory, he won a tag team title. It was crazy. That's the way McMahon promoted these guys back then. And you can see that going into the 80s. Uh, with like the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov still and like the Russians, they, yeah. they would still do that, but not as much anymore. It started fading out. And I remember hearing yeah. stories about Hogan that Vince wanted to or maybe his dad wanted to. Uh, it was Vince uh, wanted to, uh, to dye his hair orange because he was Hogan. And that was that was Irish. Right. That was Vince Senior. That's the way he promoted well, main event. Here's the one we're waiting for. Pedro Morales defeated Stan Stasiak to retain the WWF Heavyweight Championship. 12 minutes, 45 seconds. Big main event. You couldn't see because everyone was on their feet. You had to stand up on your chairs. I mean, that's when security needed to do their jobs because everyone in that arena was screaming and cheering. And the majority of the fans who were uh, of Puerto Rican descent and Morales was their hero. They were always worried about what would happen if he got beat. And uh, this night, it was a very exciting match. I mean, the heat was there right from the beginning. And one thing that um, you always uh, it used to get me upset, but there was nothing I could do. I was right in the middle of a mob when the, the challenger came out of the curtain and it was for the main event match. People stood up and that was it. They weren't sitting back down. And then Morales comes out with an explosive uh, greeting from the fans. Uh, always had a Puerto Rican flag with him. He had the title, obviously. And then uh, the brawl back and forth and Morales uh, wins the match. So I believe with I believe in this match, it could have been a roll up, a one, two, three roll up to beat Stasiak. I remember seeing Pedro Morales later on, like late 70s, early 80s. He, he was OK. He wasn't that great. Uh, what put him over back in the day? Why was he so popular? Besides his ethnic heritage, what put him over so much? Well, the fans loved him because he was Puerto Rican. But, that you know, that, that was one of the reasons. But he was the guy, after just the three-week run of Ivan Koloff, he was anointed by Bruno on February 8th, 1971, when he actually beats Koloff uh, with, a you know, a very controversial pin because both of their shoulders were down. It was almost like. It was almost like a, a suplex off the middle rope, and they both fall back, and both of their shoulders are down. And at the count of three, Morales lifts his shoulders up, gets the win, gets the title. But Bruno came in to uh, present the belt to Pedro, lifted his arms up, embraced him, and that was it. He was anointed as the champion. How is he to watch as a worker? Amazing. I mean, uh, very believable. Uh, and and he, he lost a lot. When he came back in the 80s and, you know, uh, Morales had been around for years. I mean, he wrestled 
at Madison Square Garden. I believe he was a teenager uh, the night that Bruno won the title from Buddy Rogers on May 17th, 1963. Morales was on that show, uh, but uh, Morales had been around. He had a big run in the 70s. And when it was over, it was over. And uh, when he, they decided to bring him back, he just didn't have the push for one. And, you know, you lose a step. You lose a few steps. I remember when he came back and he won the Intercontinental title, and that was going back and forth with the Intercontinental title. And then I think he lost it to Don Morocco, and then they brought in uh, Tito Santana to take mm -hmm. on Morocco. But yeah, he just wasn't, even the TV tapings, they were okay matches. It wasn't like, oh, even about like some of these jobbers he was going against, eh, it was all right. It wasn't anything great. So that's why I always wondered how he was to watch when he was on his prime. Well, the one thing about Morales, it really hurts uh, to the day because he was such a big part of the WWWF uh, for that title run. He never really got the recognition or the legendary status that he deserved. And I wasn't the best Morales fan back in the day. I was a Bruno guy. You know, when I thought wrestling was real, I thought, well, you know, Morales has got the referee in his pocket. And, you know, I used to look at, you know, he'd shake the hand of the referee. I said he's probably slipping him some money. I didn't really appreciate what Morales was until after his title reign. And as I started to study the history of the business and see what the impact that Morales had on, on the business and how beloved he was. But the organization never really treated him the way it should have. And I mean, even his funeral, because he passed away a couple of years ago, and Don Liable did a wonderful interview recently with his wife in New Jersey. When he had his funeral, there was only one person from the wrestling business there, and it was Bob Backlund, and no one else, no one else was there. And Morales was a nice guy. He was really, he was a nice guy. So I don't know what happened by, behind the scenes. I don't know what caused him to uh, not be as revered in history as he should have been. So that's a mystery. And I don't know why, but he, he certainly deserved to be treated better, especially in this era of you know, the Hall of Famers. And I believe Morales is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, 90, I, I 95, he, I, I think. he is. 95, yeah. he, was in, he was put into the Hall of Fame. And, um, but he just didn't get that, you know, he's not Bruno. He's not Hogan. He's not any of those. But he had a big place in history back then. He was the ultimate successor of the living legend Bruno San Martino. Well, let's go back for a second. I want to go back for a second. He wasn't respected. And there's somebody else. The guy he beat, I don't think, has been really respected. Ivan Koloff. No. Ivan Koloff isn't in the Hall of Fame. Why don't you think Ivan Koloff is in the Hall of Fame? It's got to be. It's just politics. It's whoever liked him or didn't like him or what he said or how he left the territory at one time. Who knows what it is, what happened and who, you know, who the conflict was with at the time. And that's a big thing with Koloff, that he's not in the Hall of Fame and he should be in the Hall of Fame. He's a guy that beat Bruno. He had runs in the WWWF, the WWF. He was a legend in the NWA. I mean, all the stuff that he did as a top notch uh, heel performer, he he's warranted to be in that Hall of Fame. And, and he was a very nice guy. I mean, uh, you know, getting to meet him and bring him on the radio show back in the day and having him at the convention. And he was just uh, someone who didn't get his due. Now, he's not with us anymore either. He's gone. It's sad that you look back at these guys and it's almost like cherry picking who's going to be remembered in the Hall of Fame and who isn't. And these guys that we're just talking about, you know, giving Bruno his break, but you got, mm -hmm. you know, Ivan Koloff. Pedro Morales should both be remembered as great champions and legends in the sport, and they're not giving the respect they deserve. That's very true, and it's sad. It really is. Uh, but 
who knows what the future holds? I mean, uh, there seems to be a different philosophy right now in the uh, WWE about history, whether it's um, whoever the suitors are going to be who purchased the company eventually. But they're starting to devote more focus to preserving the history of pro wrestling, dating back to these years that we're discussing. There's a bit of a movement going on back there in the corporate environment of the WWE about history these days. I know Paul Levesque, uh, Triple H, is a, a strong proponent of history. Bruce Pritchard is as well. Um, and even Vince may be changing his mind on it, you know, as he gets older and getting ready to sell this company. And, and uh, Nick Khan, uh, who's now president of the WWE, now in relation to Tony Khan from AEW. And they're polishing this thing up and they're trying to uh, give it a sense of history because I believe whoever's going to buy it, whether it's Disney or, uh, or NBC Universal, uh, there will be plans for museums uh, and to keep the history. And, and even the way, in my opinion, the way they're marketing it today, they're marketing it to kids on one side, but they're also marketing it to the kids' parents and the older people. I mean, because you still have the majority of people who are watching the WWE are people 40 plus. And the ratings that they got recently with the A&E Search for Hidden Treasures and the biography series. I mean, history draws ratings and people want a sense of history. So all the years that they ignored history... I believe that that's starting to turn around a little bit. I hope so. I hope so. That's one of the reasons I stopped watching a lot of it because they stopped history. When I, I can remember, it was like Mike Rotundo coming back as IRS. I was like, no, that's Mike Rotundo. Right. He was a former tag team champion. How can he be this other guy? But the dragon, you know, you get Mr. Perfect. I mean, yeah. How many times did they do that? That used to incense me when I did the radio show uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, as you know, because you were there, too. It used to be just like you get so upset. It's not Mr. Perfect. It's Kurt Henning. It's not the Texas tornado. It's right. It's that was. Yeah, it's not. It's not the Texas tornado. It's freaking Kerry Von Eric. What a great name. He's a Von Eric. That should mean something. And instead, you toss it to the side. All right, that show, Madison Square Garden show, October 25th, 1971. Our next show will be 50-year flashback, November 15th, 1971. It's a pretty big day for you, John, because you get to see for the first time live in person your future – what do you call him now? If you're the president of his fan club, you're, uh, you're He's idol? My, the honoree of the Freddie Blassie fan club, but uh, he was Fred Blassie. He was, he was the guy that I mean had read about in the magazines. He was the guy that I seen as a, uh, as somebody that I, I just gravitated to as my hero. And he was the person that I wanted to see more than anyone else because of everything I'd read about him, seen about him, heard about him. And that night that will go over November 15th, 1971 planted the seeds in my head, which also changed my life. And we will definitely get to that, you being the, becoming the president of his fan club and seeing for the first time. That, that is pretty cool. And we want to say, now, if you're enjoying the show, we enjoy hearing from you. So if you want to let us know if you have any questions about the garden in the 70s or maybe you have some great garden stories from the 70s, we would like to hear from you. Send us an email, 1970msgwrestling at gmail.com. That's 1970msg wrestling at gmail.com john read some of the stories and answer some of your questions on upcoming shows well i'd also like to make the invitation i mean uh, why not 
put it out there if somebody was at some of these shows. I mean, I know I'm an old, I'm an old fart now, you know. Uh, there's not too many people that could say they went to the Garden in 71. But if there's anybody out there that happened to go to some of these early shows, send us that email. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll bring somebody on as a guest to talk about their experience at the Garden. I'd, I'd love to do that if that's okay with Tim. Oh, absolutely. And I think it'd be great finding out some people that, you know, in later years, you started selling photos outside the Garden. I would like to hear, love to hear yeah. from somebody who bought some of your photos. Right. Yeah, that's a long time ago, man. Yeah. Oh, over, you know, it's been 50, 50 this, years. 50 years. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah, isn't it crazy? It's crazy. It that like, When I keep on saying 50-year flashback, I'm actually hanging with you, and you were there 50 years ago, and we're having a conversation with it. A lot of times you talk to people at 50 years, it's kind of like they were just little kids at the time. They don't remember much, but this is a time that you remember, I'm so glad to have you here to go over this because you were actually present for these situations. That's what makes this show so great. Yeah, it's uh, my Matt Memories, man. That was the title of my book. Uh, that's what I call my company. It's Matt Memories. Everything is about my Matt Memories, man. And and this is another platform to reminisce and to educate and kind of entertain people to talk about the days that are long gone by. And a lot of people love to hear that history of 50 years ago. And uh, I was one of the old bastards that was there. And we'll be releasing an episode every anniversary. So we're doing this one. This one is coming out on October 25th, 2021. Our next one will be coming out on November 15th, 2021. That'll be the 50th anniversary. And if you want to hear it on that day, you have to go to patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Members in the super fan, PWS associate producer, producer, or executive producer tiers will get access to the show. And for just $5 a month, you can get your foot in the door and you can get access to all the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight original broadcasts from 1989 to 1995. And remember, the higher the level, the more benefits you get. From Zoom calls with John Arizzi, access to 8mm films from shows we're discussing here, to unseen videos, to vintage magazines being sent to you. And there's only one way to experience it. That's becoming a member to John's Patreon page. Join a community. Hear the history. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. John's adding stuff to that every day. And you're really building up that Patreon, the different levels of it. Because I know some people can't afford stuff, but some people can afford stuff and they want to hear this. And they want to hear the history. They want to listen to this show. They want to listen to other shows you do. So there's no other way but from going to Patreon.com. Yeah. Yeah, this uh, th- this show is on a tier, which is really uh, pretty cost effective. It's ten bucks a month. Five dollars a month gets you in the door. So five dollars a month, you get all of the pro wrestling spotlight archives with commercials unedited. But when you go up to your ten dollar tier, which is I call the super fan tier, you get uh, not only all those original shows unedited, but you get bonus content. Uh, like I recently put up uh, when I was at the press conference, I had to sneak in uh, when Vince McMahon, uh, you know, I had that entire press conference, the raw audio from it. Uh, I have interviews. I have college shows from 1976 uh, and 75 that are on that $10 tier. And this show is the 50 year uh, uh, retrospective of uh, Madison Square Garden. That is on the $10 tier. So you get a lot of content for that. And then you have your higher tiers where you then get video and even the historic eight millimeter films that I shot back in 73 and your Zoom calls are in a tier as well that are a little bit higher, $20, $25 tier. But you got to remember, if you're at a $25 tier, you get the Zoom calls, 
you get the videos, you get this show, you get the original shows, you get the bonus content. So, I mean, most people are going to do a five or ten dollar tier, uh, but some others. I mean, I just got I got a guy who who came in at one hundred dollars a month. So he's now executive producer uh, and he gets vintage wrestling magazines in the mail every month that are basically worth one hundred dollars in itself. Every month you're going to get a package of, of old wrestling magazines from me and you get to do the zooms and you get to be listed as executive producer. So there's a lot of different things, you know, patreon.com slash. John Arezzi. And uh, I'm sharing my history. I'm sharing my archives uh, because when I'm gone, you know, where's this stuff going to be? Hopefully it'll be uh, somewhere that it wouldn't be forgotten and people will be able to enjoy it wherever, wherever my archives may land when I'm gone. But for right now, the only place to get them is on Patreon. That's right. So come on and support the Patreon. You know, this isn't a, you know, you're getting a lot of value for five bucks in the door, 10 bucks, 25 bucks, whatever fits your budget. Come on in. And like I say, Tim, this is the line. Join the community here the history. The Zoom calls, I think, are going to be really great because it, not, it won't just be like with other wrestlers. You'll be talking to you know other, other photographers, other people that were with you at different times. So you're really getting a sense of history unedited. And those Zoom calls, you can ask questions. You can be part of this. You have a question for John during the Zoom call. You get to ask John, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? Or I, I was listening to this show and I wanted to have a comment about this. Or hey, I was there too. Do you remember this? And it's just you're bringing the community together. You're bringing the history of a community together like no one else has well you know there's not very many people and i'm not really that old i mean i'm i'm gonna be 65 <laughs> in january I you look really great not. you look great but uh you know that's because i never got married probably you know i didn't have the responsibility of the kids and the wife and uh, now you know at 65 it's like maybe i should have you know because i'm sitting here with a room full of negatives and pictures and videos and uh, I talk to people via Zoom and, um, you know, it's, so anyway, everything happens for a reason in life. But uh, uh, there are very few people like me out there. You know, you look at a guy like Bill Apter, who's still pretty active with Apter's Alley and his uh, Apter Chats. And, uh, you know, Bill is in his mid to late 70s now, you know, and George Napolitano was kind of retired in a lot of ways. He's not really out there doing anything. And those are the two. And Tom Burke. Is another historian that, you know, probably close to 80 himself. So there's not very many of us left. And I, I, I was the kid back then at the garden. I was the kid when I, I was able to get my press pass as a teenager and sit next to George and Bill. I mean, I was this kid. I was a teenager. And these were guys who were, you know, not that much older, but, you know, close to 10 years older than me at the time. And they were like the dudes. And I, you know, I was this kid that just came in very respectful, as I always was. And then it was kind of funny because following me at the garden was Paul E., Paul Heyman, who kind of changed uh, the dynamic of what it was like to be a photographer at, at, at Ringside Row at the garden because he was, you know, he was Paul. He was Paul. And everybody knows his personality. Yeah. He was the same way as a kid. I mean, ironically, uh, I think people know this, but Paul E. Uh, was one of the members of my Freddie Blassie fan club that we'll get into. I mean, he was he was a kid and he joined my fan club for the three dollars and 50 cents a year membership. Wow. And look at him today. Look at him today. Yeah. He's a genius. 
The best part about this show for me, John, is how things come together. How, you know, mm-hmm. we were just talking about how, you know, uh, the, the wrestling was so different back in the day with, like, what's allowed in the garden, what's not allowed in the garden, um, nationalities, heritage, you know, Chief J. Strongbow. I remember even in the 80s, it was like heritage. This is a heritage kind of thing. How things have changed so much. And what I love talking to you about is what was it like back then? Because, like, I, I, w- I can't go back and live that. Only you lived it, and you can say, this is what it was like then, and here's how it's different today. Exactly. I, I was fortunate enough to be uh, involved in wrestling in an era which was really magical. And it was it was not the big corporate production or show that it is today. It was really stripped down. It was basic. It was ring lights. It was guys coming into the ring that looked like just tough guys, not chiseled bodybuilders until Graham came into the scene, really. Uh, so it was kind of a really cool time for me. And uh, and then there was the the magazines were so prominent. Uh, I mean, I go to the garden and go to the newsstand at Penn Station each month and there'd be 10, 12 wrestling magazines and you get them all. It was like, oh my God, I, you know, you could just read them cover to cover and learn about all the other territories. And then when you've got an opportunity to see some of these guys who would come to the WWF and for the first time have the opportunity to see them in person, it was really magical. It was really, but it was a different era, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't national cable TV, man. It was just on, it was, and you had to find it on channel 41 or 47, which all the other programming was Hispanic. And, you know, the wrestling was in English, you know, it was UHF channel. So it wasn't cable. It was UHF. So you'd have your TV where you change the channels, not even with a remote. And then you'd have to go to UHF uh, and try to find channel 47 or channel 41. And it required a different antenna. It was like a dial, wasn't it? You were dialing. Yeah. Like a radio. Like like you'd have it, you'd have it, but you'd have to put a different antenna on the back of the TV and you never would get crystal clear coverage out on Long Island. It was always fuzzy. And it was always like ghosts, you know, like and you'd have to put aluminum. I mean, I used to have to put aluminum foil on the UHF antenna and position it near a window or whatever to try to get a clear picture to watch it. And it was black and white. It wasn't color, you know, and uh, it was all that stuff. It was, uh, you know, it was that the TV I had was a black and white TV in my bedroom. I mean, I wasn't allowed to fuck around with the, the, the color TV in the living room, you know, and put try to put a UHF antenna on there. Uh, that wasn't permitted at all, but it was a challenge. And you'd start trying to get the picture, you know, clear uh, uh, almost an hour before the show started, just to make sure that once it started, you were, you know, getting the best picture possible. And then, you know, in early 72, um, that's when I got my first cassette player, my little re- cassette recorder, and I would tape the interviews off of uh, TV. So you'd have to get all that set up. And then you'd have to, if you, if you, and my little sister, Donna, who everybody knows, you know, she'd come in and, you know, uh, you'd have to try to shut her up when we had the baby, uh, my older sister's baby at, you know, 72 was born and, and it was like, can you all just shut up for an hour so I could tape wrestling, you know? And so a lot of the old cassettes that I have that we're starting to put up on the Patreon, some of these old interviews, sometimes you hear, you hear the background noise. Wow. And I, even some of them I can't even play because I'm very embarrassed. Like when Fred Blassie <laughs> came back, I just got up and started screaming. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, Blassie's back. Oh, my God. You know, it's like and it's like my mother, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, Freddie Blassie's back. Who's Blassie? You know? Uh, so it's like, and all this is on like cassettes that I have. You oh, know, I want to hear so that. I want to hear that. I think that'd be great. I want to hear a little, yeah. little Johnny yeah. Rizzi running. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a very high pitched voice and a very New York accent. And, uh, 
It's very embarrassing to hear what I sounded like at 14 years old. But for the Patreons, you'll do it. Of course. Okay. <laughs> hey, we want to do a quick shout out to Scott Teal. His book, Wrestling at the Garden, is one of our keys to the show. So thank you so much, Scott, for putting that together. Uh, we use it. It's like our Bible. And Richie Garcia helps us uh, do the research for the show. He writes. He helps write the scripts for the show. Yes. Uh, I know we don't phenomenal. sound scripted, but we, we do have things written down here. So we understand, we, we say the right names of the people and the right times of things as, as best to our knowledge. Yeah, I want to thank Richie. Uh, for all the hard work and, and and you Tim for you guys coming up with this you know this concept and presenting it to me and I was like this is a no brainer uh, this is something that's really cool and I'm happy that you asked me to do it I'm happy to be here and of course Scott Teal and Wrestling at the Garden I mean CrowbarPress.com what a collection of historic books that Scott puts out and Wrestling in the Garden uh, is is my favorite uh, because I I still I just go through it all the time just to read the results and the tidbits of history. So if you want a copy of it, go to crowbarpress.com, Wrestling in the Garden, published by Scott Teal. All right. Anything else, John? I think that's it for this week or this month. I should say. That's it for this month. We will see you again November 15th, 2021. See, I didn't mess it up that time. And we'll be reviewing Madison Square Garden November 15th, 1971, the 50th anniversary. For John Rizzi, I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time. 